there is a longing in the deepest parts of us to belong. The hope that there is a table somewhere that we we might actually be comfortable inside our own skin. We don't have to hide. We don't have to have our secrets. There's always been a community of relationship. We're designed for that. Okay, so what you just saw there was the image or scene of a table with many people seated around it. Um, I'd like to talk to you about that today. For those of you who are just checking in with us for the first time, we've been focusing on why it's so vitally important that we establish a healthy, meaningful relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are eternally thankful for what Christ has done in coming to show us uh, what the Father is like. Uh, We're eternally thankful for his uh, willingness to live among us, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and all that that means. We're also grateful for the person of the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us and activates the various aspects of our salvation in our lives. But what we've been talking about is this relationship with the Father that, in my opinion, provides the necessary security in order that all that the Son has done and all that the Holy Spirit does can actually make a difference in our lives. We must have an intimate relationship with the Father. We have to. It's not enough just to thank Jesus. It's not enough just to enjoy the the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We must look to have an intimate relationship with the Father. That's what we've been talking about. For those of you who've missed all or any of the weeks that we spent, you can find them all online free. I would encourage you to go back and take a look at um, take a look at those. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Um, as I share with you this final week uh, in in talking about a home for our heart. I have a particular title I want to give to today's um, talk, and I'm calling it A Seat at the Father's Table. A Seat at the Father's Table. In the corporate world, having a seat at the table is a very familiar uh, idiom. And in the corporate world, This phrase, having a seat at the table, often references those who are considered to have influence and power in order to make decisions and affect change. The table has become, in the corporate world, the table has become a symbol of power, negotiation, credibility, through which one can forward their career and generate possibly a sale or plot a course that would lead to more success for them. In other words, when one is provided a seat at the table in the corporate world, it represents a certain aspect of authority so that you can make a difference, hopefully for others, but a difference for yourself. I think this is very much what James and John had in mind When they approached Jesus, and in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, listen to what they said to him. This is what they said. I have it for you on the screen. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. Here are these guys that have, up until this point, probably around two, two and a half years, they have been with the Son of God, and they've been observing him and, and gleaning from him, getting things imparted to them. And after two and a half years of being in his company, they have the, I don't know, 
you can say it a number of different ways. They have the chutzpah to ask him to do whatever they ask. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Jesus, in turn, asked them, what is it that you want? Turns out that they wanted the most influential seats at the table. They asked if they could sit at the right and the left of Jesus. They were looking for a place, a power, and influence, but I think you can hear it just in the way that they asked. It was being done so for their own benefit, right? I mean, you got two out of the 12 that are kind of peeling them off to the side and asking for this favor, and it's hard not to have it be insinuated that they were looking to get a step up on the other 10. Now, in response to that, Jesus says, you have no idea what you are asking for. I think, you, I think in that is implied a number of different things, but he goes on to talk about uh, the hardships that come with uh, you know, being at the head of the table, so to speak, the suffering that comes with that. And I don't think they were, that wasn't in their calculation. They were looking for power and influence in a selfish way. Now, as that scene in Mark chapter 10 unfolds, uh, we're told that the other 10 got indignant. They got upset. They got, up, they, got up, they got angry when they heard what John and James were asking for. But as you read the passage, I think you come to the conclusion the reason that they were upset that they did that was because they actually beat them to the punch. Right? They also had in their heart something that wanted those seats at the table. Jesus went on to tell them that the corporate style of sitting at the Father's table, uh, it's, it, uh, let me say it this way, sitting at the Father's table is different than sit, being seated at a corporation's table. In fact, he went on to say, if you want a seat at that table, you need to learn how to serve. You need to learn how to serve others in a selfless way. In looking at the life of Jesus, we notice something interesting. He spent a lot of time around people's tables. Do a study for yourself, and you will find that many of the, the uh, uh passages that we, that we like and we turn to and, and many of the teachings that Jesus gave, he gave around the setting of or in the, in, with the circumstances of there being a table, if you will, in the background. As we look a little bit closer, we notice that the company around this ta these tables are remarkably uh, different. We find him around a table sharing a meal with outcasts, people who had broken all the rules and were seen as less than. Yet at the same time, we find him around a table with the elite self-righteous spiritual leaders of the day. They also had meals with Jesus. We read about him spending time at the tables of wealthy men whose riches were won through lies and corruptions, and yet at the same time we see him at tables with both men and women who had given up everything to follow him. Jesus spent time around a table with virtually anyone and everyone who was willing to share a meal with him. Today we hear a lot about inclusiveness, inclusiveness about people being, more, being inclusive with their lives. I just want to say to us this morning, if there was anybody, as you read about his life, if there was anybody who was inclusive, it was Jesus. Again, I say to you, he was willing to share a table with anyone 
and everyone who was willing to share a table with him. Now, what that tells me is, is this, this table that the Bible speaks of, the Father's table in, particularly, in particular, is a very large table. It isn't meant for just a few. It's a large table that goes as far as the eye can see. I don't think you and I can even begin to imagine how big this table really is. And around this table are chairs. And each one of those chairs is meant to be filled by someone. It's a big table. The price of admission to this table has already been paid through Jesus. He has the tickets. Everyone is invited to come. The invitation doesn't come with a long list of requirements. It doesn't matter who you are. You're welcome to come as you are. If you're poor, you're welcome at this table. If you're rich, you're welcome at this table. How do I know that? Because Jesus was willing to share a time around a table with anyone and everyone. If you're humble, if you're proud, doesn't matter. Come, the table, the invitation is open to any and all who would like to come to the table. No one is excluded. You need to know, though, that no one actually gets a prominent seat at this table. Everyone is on equal footing. Everyone is equally loved. The only thing that you and I need to bring to the table is a broken and contrite heart that has a genuine desire to have relationship with the Father. That's all we have to bring with us is a heart that says, Father, I want to be at your table. All of this that I just described to you can be summed up in one word. It's the word grace. Grace is more than just what we say before we eat. It's much, much bigger than that. Grace is one of the amazing benefits of coming home to live with the Father in his house. Grace. Grace has been defined in a number of different ways. For our purposes this morning, I want to I use this definition. Grace means unmerited favor, which means extending special favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, and can never repay it. Let me read that one more time. Extending special favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, and can never repay it. Before we get to some New Testament stuff, I want to I take you to a story in the Old Testament that I believe is a foreshadow of what it means to have a seat at the Father's table. The story I want to talk to you about is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. To understand the story, I need to back up a little bit to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, God, at the request of the people of Israel, decides to give them permission to have a king. It was always in his heart that he would be their king. But they were clamoring for a king like the other nations of the earth had. And so God relented and said, okay, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. They chose as their first king a guy by the name of Saul. By outward appearance, he had all that was necessary to, to, uh, to look like the person that the people of Israel would, would like as their leader. As Paul is installed as king, Things seem to start off okay. They go for a while in history there, in everything. God seems to be blessing them a bit. But then Saul starts doing his own thing. He starts 
leading like a leader would lead that has his own interests in mind. And as Saul does so, things start to go sideways quickly. And as things begin to go sideways, uh, God gets to the point where he says, you know, I've really had enough. This was a nice experiment. It was a nice try, but uh, I, I can't have Saul leading my people. I just can't do it. You know what it's like, right? You watch something for a while, and it's like, I, we can't do this anymore, right? So, so God says, I am going to choose someone of my liking. Someone that would be uh, similar to me in heart. Not in outward appearance, but in heart. And so he taps a young man by the name of David. You all know the story. Most of you in here probably know, know the story. They start out with Saul. That was the people's choice. Then, then God says, that's enough of that. I am going to anoint another to sit as leader over Israel, and my choice is David. And so there's this weird period of time, you might call it the time in between, where Saul is still the king of Israel, but David has been anointed as his successor. So this, there's this weird dynamic going on. It's like Saul's still in charge, but David's really the king from God's perspective. So as this moves forward in this way, Saul starts to get, he starts to pick up on something. Something is changing, right? And so he starts to catch wind of David being, there's something special about David. And as he catches wind, wind about that, he starts to despise David. He starts to hate David to the point of wanting to kill David. You all know the story, right? Now, <clears throat> as this is happening, simultaneously, as this is all going down, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, become friends. Like, not just friends, just the casual friends, they become like blood brothers, like intimate, close friends. Not, not I, when I say intimate, I don't mean that way. You got to be careful what you say today. I, it wasn't, wasn't that kind of thing. They were like brothers, right? Close brothers. And in that time period that I'm describing to you, and I think as Jonathan kind of sees the writing on the wall, that his father is end up, he's going to end up going down. Jonathan and David make a covenant with each other. In 1 Samuel 20, I want to read to you uh, three uh, verses, 13 through 17. This is what it says. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. This is Jonathan speaking. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. Now, let me just pause right there to, to insert something that we need to understand. When a certain king would be disposed and another king would come into, uh, into a place of reigning, one of the first things that king would do would get rid of all of the other uh, people before him because he didn't want the threat of being disposed, okay? So this covenant that's going down right now is Jonathan pleading with his close friend David that, and he sees it, he sees it coming when David becomes king that he would not kill off Saul and his family. You hear it? Okay. <clears throat> do not, then it goes on, do not ever cut off your kindness 
from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Verse 16 says, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So these two guys, they make a pact with each other. And, and, and basically it was that David would continue to express kindness to Saul's family even after he's come into power, full, unadulterated power, when he's come into that, that he would be kind to Saul's family. Now, as time moves forward and we get to 2 Samuel, both Saul and Jonathan are dead. Jonathan passed away. He was killed in a fight with the Philistines. And because that fight went so poorly, Saul did not want to be captured, so he took his own life. David now becomes the full-fledged king of Israel. And, and God begins to give David smashing success. Victory after victory after victory after victory. God is blessing the new leader of Israel. People see it. They're, they're thanking God. They're, they're, they're crying out their praises to David. David, now Israel is in this most wonderful place. Life is good. And there's this time of peace throughout the country of Israel. As they enter this time of peace... David, it tells us, is uh, thinking back to the covenant that he made with Jonathan. He's thinking about it one day. He's musing about it and thinking, you know, I made this covenant with my best friend. And I'm wondering, uh, are there any, are there still, is there any of Saul's family that's still alive? that I could express grace to, that I could show kindness to. And that's where I want to pick up our story today. In verse 3 of chapter 9 in 2 Samuel, we read this. The king asked, this is David, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I may show God's kindness? A servant by the name of Ziba Answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Uh, uh, Ziba answered, he is at the house of Kamir, the son of Emil, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Kamir, the son of Emil. And when... Uh, now, I always, when I pronounce this, you'll forgive me this morning if I get tongue-tied, uh, but it's just the way it is, all right? When, Moph when Mephibosheth, that's really close right there, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. I want you to say that with me. You say, you're laughing, but it's not as easy as it sounds. On the count of three, I want you to say his name. One, two, three. Mephibosheth. Now, in my Bible, there is an exclamation point after that. I want you to note that. Mephib the king, this, this guy comes in. He's, he's, he's scared to death, right? And, and he's bowing down before David, and David is like, Mephibosheth! He's excited to see him, all right? And, 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 and to that, uh, Mephibosheth says, your servant, he replied. David says, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you grace, kindness, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. 
you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. And finally it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. What an amazing story of grace. This story, in my mind, makes it clear why David got the label, a man after God's own heart. This was God's heart being expressed in this moment. As I mentioned earlier, this is a foreshadow of God giving us a place at his table when David did what he did for Mephibosheth, it, it's an illustration of God's compassion and grace towards us. There are two clear things that I noticed happened here. First, in David doing what he did, he gave Mephibosheth value and worth again. Value and he returned to him his value and worth. Mephibosheth saw himself equal to his surroundings. We just read there when, when David was asking, where is this guy at? Where is this guy that's crippled in both feet? Where is he living now? And the servant says he's with a family down in Lodebar. If you look it up, you'll find out that Lodebar means a place of nothing. Here was this guy, a leftover, if you will, from Saul's family. And he found himself living in a place of nothing and crippled and living in a place of nothing. Even in his own words to David, he says, why would you, why would you do what you're doing for a dead dog like me? That's how he saw himself. I am, I am crippled, I'm living in a place of nothing. I am like a dead dog. Now, if you know how dogs are viewed in places around the world, probably except this place we lived in, we live in. You know, dogs here, they get special treats, right? Dogs get their own beds. Here in this place where we live, we have to buy special food for our dogs. You know, I see that ad on TV about, about the farmer's dog. They're selling farmer's dog food. And I look at it and said, I don't eat that good. <laughs> it has to be refrigerated and taken care of. And just so. And that's how we treat dogs. But that's not how they saw dogs. Dogs, uh, they, uh, I remember one time, one, one time uh, Daniel, the, the, our brother from India, he was here, and uh, we had, it was way back when we had Barney next door. And Barney came in our house. He was like, what is this dog doing in the house? 
Then when we were over in India on a missions trip, and you saw the scroungy dogs that were running around town and whatnot, you understood why he thought it was weird that we had a dog in our house. Well, think of that, because that's how this time period that we're reading about, that's how they viewed dogs. They were scroungers. They were, they were people, they were, not people, they weren't people. They were animals who uh, just lived on the scraps of whatever they could find out there, right? Scavengers. And so Mephibosheth says about himself, that's the life I live. That's who I am. I'm living in Nowheresville. I am, I am a mess physically. I am like, and, and a dead dog was like, a double whammy, right? That's how he saw himself. But, but when David saw him, remember he said, go get that guy, bring him over here, I want to see him. Instead of saying, look, you, boy, you're all crippled. You're, you're, where did you come from? Lodebar. Oh, that, that's like nothingsville, Right? No, he sees Mephibosheth and says, Mephibosheth! Did you ever have somebody that's glad to see you? It makes you feel good. Oh, it's you. No, (laughs) Mephibosheth! It's got an exclamation after his name. David's actually excited to meet Jonathan's son, that he can bless and be gracious towards. In that moment, something had to have uh, got transformed in Mephibosheth's heart. Had to have. There was a sense of value and worth that got instilled to him, imparted to him in that very moment when David called his name. But then it says, the second thing David did was, he said, you know what? And kings don't do this. In fact, David was advised not to do what he was doing. Do, you do not give back to your archenemy stuff that belonged to them. But he says, you know what? I made this covenant with Jonathan. I, my heart is like God's heart. And I want to restore back to you everything that you ended up getting uh, left out on, right? I'm going to restore that back to you. Amazing grace. Amazing, amazing grace. Now, as most of you know, we have been dipping in and out of uh, the story that Jesus told to reveal the Father's heart in Luke chapter 15, the story about the prodigal son, the two sons that lived at the father's house. The younger son decided to do his own thing for a while. And so he takes that which is his from the father. He goes off, squanders it. So forth, so forth. You all know the story. We've touched base about it, right? The younger son, when he came home, and the father ran to meet him, that younger son in that moment got his worth back. He got his value back. But the father didn't stop there. He said, remember, remember, we've touched on it. He says, grab that robe and that ring and some sandals and whatnot. And in that moment, it was an expression of the father restoring back to him those things that had been lost through his rebellion and choice not to live with the father in his house. Now, here's what I want you to see in that. The younger son knew that this was grace. He knew. He, remember, he kept rehearsing what he thought it was going to have to be like 
when he got back home. Well, I'll just be a servant, you know. I'll, maybe he'll let me work as a hired hand, so forth and so on. And then this carpet, this red carpet is rolled out for him. He knew that this was, he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. And he could never pay it back. It was 100% grace. 100% grace. We also know it was grace because of how the older son reacted to what the father was doing. The older son got upset at this amazing expression of grace, and the younger or the older son thought that this son didn't deserve it. And that he, it, you kind of get the impression it's like, well, maybe in time, if he works long enough and hard enough, he should get these things back. But he shouldn't be getting them back now because I've worked long and hard to be in this house. But the father said, no, we're at my table, we do things differently. Hey, I'm offering him a seat at the table. You have a seat at the table. I want, I've always loved you. I've always cared about you. But I'm giving a, a seat to the son again, my younger son again, because it's about grace. There's nothing that you and I could do to earn a seat at this table. There's nothing... We don't deserve a seat at this table. It's all God's grace towards us. The minute that you think that you have arrived, like, like James and John, like you deserve a seat at this table, you, you, you've, you've entered into the corporate realm. And out of the realm of the Father's grace. Mephibosheth didn't deserve what he got. The younger son didn't deserve what he got. And you and I don't deserve a seat at the Father's table. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. We're going to share in some more music and worship as we're doing communion this morning. I want to, I want to bring this right down to where you and I live. I told you when I started out that this, this table, the Father's table, in my mind, is a table we can't see the beginning of it, the end of it, but the portion we can see has seats available all the way around that are meant to be filled. You and I, by God's grace, have been invited to come and have a seat at this table. But as with any invitation, we can choose to accept or reject it. At home right now on our, on our kitchen table, we have an invitation to a wedding. And, and, and there's a little card in there, and it says RSVP. That's an opportunity for us to say yay or nay to this event. The Father, his heart is that we would all say, yes, we're coming. But my experience is, is that there are some people who, for, what, for reasons I, I don't quite understand, choose to say, no, no. I don't want to have a seat at that table.
This has implications not just now. Not just, yeah, for eternity. I think there's other folks that know, the, know that there's something to this and know that they need to do something about their souls. But, but I, think when they, I think when they accept the invitation, they think that they're going to get presented a TV tray on the way in and say, you have to sit over there. And I just want to make it abundantly clear this morning that God doesn't have any TV trays for us. He wants us at his table with his presence in our midst, with him being able to, like that video clip that we showed, to enter into that moment and meal. It's not about the food. It's about his presence with us. It's about him being able to love on us, him being able to to minister to us in the ways that we need it personally. Jesus went way out of his way to purchase us a means by which we can have a seat at this table. And I'm asking all of us this morning as we, as we conclude this idea of living in the Father's house that you would accept, if you haven't already, the gracious gift that God has presented to you and me to join Him around His table. Now, we're sharing in communion this morning, which is, there's a prophetic note about this table, the Lord's table. Because when Jesus was talking to his disciples about it, they they were sharing in it in that moment, but Jesus said, there will come a day when I will eat with you in my Father's kingdom. He was talking about the eternal aspect of the table I'm talking to you about this morning. Peter, in his letter, he called what I'm saying to you this morning the gracious gift of life. Abundant life now and eternal life later. The gracious gift of life. You know, part of part of the decline of our culture is they tell us that nobody ever eats around the family table anymore. our fast-paced lives, people going on all different directions, that it's rare for a family to join together around a table. And what ends up we miss is, is the presence of that. It's not about the food. You can get food anywhere. It's the presence of that moment. I say to all of us this morning, if you haven't already accepted Christ's invitation to come to the table, I beg you to take him up on that offer. Don't spurn his grace. And if you've kind of done this journey so far in your life by having TV table moments, I invite you to step away from the TV table and come come and join the adults at the big table. Come and join join with us at, at the big table 
and become a full-fledged member of God's house and His table. Take your seat. There is a seat with your name on it. That's what the Bible says. Your name is on there. Come and take your seat. In closing, before we share communion this morning, I want to read to you about this big table. John says it this way, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters, and like the sound loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The invitation is for us now because there are benefits for us in coming to the Father's table now in our lives. But I want to say to us, there is coming a day when if you don't take your seat at the table now, you will not have a seat at the table that I just read to you. The table is open to any and all. Jesus made it clear He shared tables with people, anyone and everyone. All we simply have to do is come with a heart that says, Lord, I know I don't deserve it. I know I can't earn it. But thank you for my seat at the table. We're inviting you to come and share at the table this morning. And I want it to be, it's meant to be prophetic. That you are, we could have served you this morning. We could have, you know, handed things out. But I wanted it to be a prophetic moment where you are saying to God, yes, I am coming to take my seat at your table. So as we begin to worship now, I'm going to pray, but as we start to worship, as you you feel called, as you feel led, come to the Lord's table. Take your rightful place. Lord, I thank you for what you have done to make it possible for us to have relationship again with the Father. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. We give thanks for your, the emblem of your body. We give thanks, thanks for the emblem of your blood, Lord. But this morning, Lord, we take that to the point that we're thankful for the seat that we've been offered at our Father's table. And so, Lord, as we step out of our seats, And we come and we receive what you have paid for us. Lord, we ask that you would see it as us saying in our hearts, we gladly take, we humbly take our seat at your table. In Jesus' name. some way this world that we live in has a way of crippling us somehow all of us at least ones that I know of none of us come from prestige or nobility find ourselves living in a little town called Arcade or Delavan or Yorkshire or Sandusky or Freedom. But 
when we accept the Father's invitation. In the same way that Mephibosheth accepted David's invitation. It has a way of changing things drastically. Can you imagine Jonathan's son goes from living in Nowheresville, messed up in body. Remember what it said? He was going to spend the rest of his life eating like one of the king's sons at the table. That's how we should see our lives. Is that God has taken us out of stuff and brought us to himself, seated us at his table. And we now get to do life as one of his sons. No longer orphans, no longer insecure, worried about the same things that everyone else gets all upset about. We have a seat at our Father's table. He's given us value. He's given us worth. And He's restored. He's in the business of restoring. Lord, thank You. Thank You that when we come home, you didn't greet us at the door with a frown. You ran to wrap your Father God arms around us and to welcome us into your home. And thank you for giving us a seat at your table again. Not just a seat, but a seat as one of your sons and one of your daughters. All because of your great grace. Truly that is a gift to us. Your great grace. Lord, as we leave here today and we get busy with our week again and May we live out our lives, as this song just said to us, with our with our heads, our heads held high because of your gracious hand extended towards us. As we go from this place, I pray that your spirit would go with us, speaking to us throughout the week as we join you around your table. Amen.